0: Well, it's Christmas time, and we are the second week into our Advent series. Last week, we heard all about Christ as the better man, the only man who was truly righteous, and in him we have our identity and our union. This week is all about the good news, all about the good news of Christmas. And there are a lot of reasons I'm excited to preach this passage, but one of those is it seems to be a layup in some ways. Because who doesn't want to hear good news? I mean, there's never a bad time for good news. If you ever have good news, come find me anytime. But it's particularly when things are bad that we crave good news. When we're weary, when we're trying to make sense of the cards that life has dealt us, oh, we crave good news that will help us make sense of this. I think that's in particular why there was one news source at the beginning of the pandemic that went viral. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, Jim uh, Krasinski, who I will always know him forever as Jim from Jim. I just called him Jim. John Krasinski, I will know him as Jim from The Office, came up with this idea in 2013 for a show called Some Good News. Well, when the pandemic hit, it was the right time to go for it. And it lived up to its name. It was a show about some good news that was happening. It was really happy, really chirpy, really excited. Uh, There were stories of kindness, people getting married. It just made you feel good. But as quickly as it came, the show disappeared. And people were outraged. They felt betrayed because they found out that the show was sold to a major news source and they thought, well, can good news actually even be good? They sold out to the man. This good news is going to be corrupt. And then John came out and he let everyone know that actually this was an idea. I was never planning on doing this very long. I've got movies to make. He was never actually the man for this good news. Then, of course, we saw for what it was. It wasn't meant to solve all of life's problems of suffering. Uh, It was just some good news that maybe made you feel momentarily good for a little while. Well, as I was thinking about that story and I was thinking about our sermon, one of the questions that just kept coming up to my mind was, what makes good news good? What makes good news good? Clearly, we had some good news with the show, but it didn't actually go to the deeper human desire of good news that we actually want to hear. It couldn't carry the weight of, of actually making sense of suffering. It couldn't carry the weight of actually lasting for a while. And after all, for us, we've been trained. Life teaches us that often good news is too good to be true. Is there any good news that can bear the weight of our longings and our desire? And the answer from our text this morning is a resounding, joyful, life-giving yes. Yes, there is good news that actually brings goodness into our life. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 61, and Isaiah is a tough book to just quickly parachute in. So a couple pieces of context that will ha- help us. First of all, Isaiah is speaking, particularly in our passage, to Judah. And Judah is uh, uh, he's speaking specifically in light of Babylonian captivity of Judah. Now, Judah was going to go into captivity not because uh, of bad political decisions, but because of, of sin. They turn from God and turn from doing good things. Secondly, Isaiah breaks up into three books, basically. And we're in the third book where the central character is often called the, the, the anointed conqueror. This conqueror is going to bring in restoration of God's people in God's place. And when he comes in, he is going to come in proclaiming this good news but the question we have to deal with is, can this news actually be good? Do they deserve to hear this good news? And this, is this good news too good to be true? We see in our passage that the Messiah's news is good for one reason. Because God is good. It's actually going to be the big idea of our passage and our sermon this morning. The Messiah's news is good because God... God is good. Those will actually be the two points as well. The first point, we'll look at how the Messiah's news is good. That'll be verses 1 through 7. And the second point, we'll look at the cause of that good news, that God is good in verses 8 through 11. And as often is the case around here, my first point will be the longest. And in my defense, it's got the most verses, so it'll take up more time. But let's go ahead and dive in and let's see... What makes the Messiah's news good? Listen as I read from Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. To comfort all who mourn. To provide for those who mourn in Zion. To give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Festive oil instead of mourning. And splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees. Planted by the Lord to glorify him. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks, and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you will be called the Lord's priests. They will speak of you as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations. You will boast in their riches. In a place of your shame, you will have a double portion. In a place of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share. So they will possess double in their land, and eternal joy will be theirs. What comforting news this is to read. And who's giving this news Well, the center at the figure is this anointed one. Uh, you can see in verse 1 that it's the spirit of the sovereign God, the God who saved God's people from Israel, from, uh, from um, Egypt. That same spirit would be sent uh, to, to on this proclaimer. This is in part how Judah would identify who this figure would be. They would see the spirit of God would be on, upon him. Secondly, they would see that he would come proclaiming Good news to the poor. We can see that in our passage. We have seven infinitive phrases, but at the center of them is, is proclamation. You can see in verse one, he will come to bring good news to the poor. That he will proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Verse two, he will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor, that comes from Leviticus chapter 25. And every 50 years, is, this was supposed to be a time of forgiving debts, releasing f- slaves, restoring land. To our knowledge, Israel or Judah never kept that once. But this figure would come proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, and this year would have no end. It would be permanence. He would also come proclaiming the day of God's vengeance. This is the day of judgment. It's quick. It's sudden. It's swift. And all sin, all evil, all injustices will be judged on that final day. How sweet this news would have been to the captives. And right away, I just want to make one observation about what makes this news good. It's because we should have expected bad news. I know it's, it's, it's real profound, right? That what makes the news good is that it's not bad. But when we think about who the captives are, remember that Judah is going into Babylonian captivity but the reason they're going into Babylonian captivity is because of the sin. We read in verse 50 uh chapter 59 verse 12 talking about the same group. For our transgressions have multipl- multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities. Transgressions and deception against the Lord, turning away from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering lying words of the heart. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar. Because they lost God, they turned from God, they lost justice. And you know, when people are bad, we expect bad news. That's what we see in our Twitter verse. When someone does something bad, oh, the rage comes out. In the public square, rage comes out. And to be frank, Judah deserved this bad news. But this message changes when we realize, oh, we're the bad guys. We're the ones who have acted unjustly. And all of a sudden, we want to hear good news Not just the bad news. So the captivity that they're talking about right here isn't just of a national captivity. It's the captivity of sin. It's the captivity that leaves us, like Isaiah says, blind people trying to feel their way in the dark. And they're trying to find their way out, but they can't find their way. And they end up hurting people in the process. Justice is far away from them. This is why this is good news. To the poor in spirit. To the captives. This morning, I don't know if you find yourself here in this text. uh, Do you find yourself mourning your sin? That you keep doing the things you don't want to do. Maybe you find yourself captive to an addiction. Alcohol. Of gaming. Of lust. Maybe you're addicted to Defending yourself because you're so afraid of, of man that you have a habit of lying, of gossiping, putting other people down so that you can look better. Sin takes us captive. But the good news is that for those of us who feel it, who are mourning our sin, oh, he has come to proclaim liberty. He's come to proclaim freedom. Freedom. Well, in verses 1 through 2, we see that the news is good because, well, it's, it's not bad. But in verses 3 through 7, we see the outworking of verse 2, the year of proclamation, uh, the year of favor. And, and, and we see here that the news is good because the Messiah will bring about a beautiful and thorough restoration. Beautiful and thorough restoration. We see that God's people are transformed with the coming of this good news. Let's just go through these verses and sit in it for a moment. So following the proclamation of the Lord's favor, he will come to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion. And rather than sackcloth and ashes and despair, Oh, he's going to give them a crown of beauty, festive oil, splendid clothes, like that of a celebration. And these people who are once weak and mourning, oh, they're going to be like these righteous trees planted by the Lord. And here we just get the image of big trees with deep roots that are immovable. God will make them strong. And they will glorify him. What will these people do? These strong righteous trees? Well, God will use them. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They'll restore the former devastations. They are going to rebuild the place of God. And it's not just going to be them. We see that the nations are invited to join their work in verse 5. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks. And foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. And we see that even the ministers of God, the priests, they will eat the wealth of the nations and boast in the riches. That just means all of the glory, all of the wealth, all of the flourishing of the nations come to meet at God's people. Oh, but in verse 8, oh, we see this sweet restoration that they will be called priests. Before only one person, certain people could be in the presence of God, but now the presence of God would be for everyone, everyone will be able to be in His presence, and they will, they will be spoken of as ministers of our God. They will proclaim the same good news. And this verse eight, I think, uh, sorry, verse seven is just beautiful. In the place of shame, you will have a double portion. This I, this idea of land and double portion. It has to do more so with identity and place. I was always the firstborn that received the double portion. So he's saying that, that God's people will all receive this double portion. What a sweet picture and vision of restoration. And then it ends not just with temporary relief, but eternal joy. I think this starts to get closer. To the kind of good news that our souls crave. The kind of good news that can bring lasting and good change into our life. The only question is, who's this person going to be? Isaiah didn't tell us. And it would be about 700 years later when Jesus would appear. And his ministry begins with his baptism where we see the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove and God's spirit comes upon Jesus. Jesus goes out proclaiming good news to the regions around him. And then we heard in Luke 4, the passage that was read by Tim Mills just a little bit earlier. Jesus walks into the synagogue of his hometown. He's handed a scroll. He unwinds it. It's not like our Bibles today where we just turn through it quickly. He unwinds it. He finds it. He reads this passage. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You can almost feel it in the room. Hands the scroll back. Walks over. He sits down. He says, today as you listen, this scripture has been Fulfilled. Jesus saw himself as the one fulfilling this, and it's interesting to note where he ends, right? He ends this by saying to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He doesn't say anything yet about the day of vengeance here, because with the good news he came proclaiming was the year of the Lord's favor. Now, for Isaiah, looking at this day that was going to come, uh, he saw it from a distance. And so it seemed like this, this year of the Lord's favor and the day of the, of the Lord's vengeance would be one and the same. But as we zoom in closer and Jesus appears, we see that actually with his first coming, he came to bring grace and favor. And then he will come again to bring a day of vengeance Sometimes it's been compared to if you see maybe a city in the distance and as you get closer, you see there are multiple skyscrapers, but you can't see that from a distance or maybe mountains. There's one mountain here, but as you get closer, you realize there's two mountains. As we get closer, we see that actually the fulfillment is coming in two places. And so Jesus goes proclaiming this good news. Uh, proclaiming it wherever he could go. And this day of judgment wasn't going to come for God's people, but the day of judgment was going to come on him for God's people. So he goes to the cross and he dies after living a perfect life that none of us lived and he dies taking on our sin. He resurrects from the dead showing his victory over Satan's sin and death and he now ascended. he's ascended in heaven ruling and reigning in heaven and we see the beauty that actually god placed all of his wrath and judgment for our sin on jesus at the day of of the cross so that we could experience the breaking in of this kingdom today the year of the lord's favor if you're here this morning and you're not a christian You know, this is the good news that I I want you to hear. Do you feel mourning from sin? Do you feel the brokenness in, in your own life from the way that maybe you've mistreated other people? If you don't, I want to encourage you to think about that today because one day Christ will return with judgment and judgment will come with him. But you have the opportunity right now, if you are poor in spirit, lowly in heart, to believe in him and turn to him today. And all you will have to experience left is this this year of favor, God's blessing that will come upon you. There's a lot more we could say about this, but this is the news I want you to consider this morning. If you have any questions about it, you can ask whoever is next to you. Uh, You can come find me after the service. This is the good news we want you to believe To the Christians in in the room, uh, how, how does this apply to our life? Well, in one way, we need to know the good news that we proclaim. As a church, we're all about this proclamation. The church, we're not perfect. We don't save you. We don't redeem you. It's this good news of the Messiah that saves people. So you'll notice in our church, that's why we teach the word of God as often as we do. It's because we believe this is the good news that will change you. You won't find it internally just inside of me. Pastor, you will find it in the good news of Christ Jesus. We are in the business of proclaiming the gospel. And as we spread out from here, this is the good news that you take with you. This is the good news for you to share as well. But as we look at this good news, I I think we need to be students of this good news. And in particular, understand what it means to live between Christ's advents, between Christ's first coming and his second coming. You know, God's people have always been a people that wait. We're always waiting on God's fulfillment of his promises. And today, even we wait for all of the fulfillment of his purposes to come true. So what does that mean for us here? I think that that means we live simultaneously in joy and in longing. Simultaneously in joy and in longing. And if we shift our expectations too far to one side, it can really mess with our message. And so you'll hear some people talk about this idea of an over- or under-realized eschatology. Yep, those are the big words. Eschatology is just theology dealing with the last days. And when we talk about an over-realized eschatology, we're talking about we expect all of the final products, uh, everything that comes with Jesus' second coming today, which is not what Jesus actually came to promise. Or if we under-realize, we actually don't Uh, believe his comfort to be here in in a way that his his news his gospel news actually comes to us today so so even pushing this deeper how does this affect how we live today well i i think we should expect suffering we should expect pain does that contradict the news we just heard no actually jesus said that we would suffer as he would suffer and he had told us to carry uh, the cross with him in our discipleship. And so today an over-realized eschatology gives us the expectations that, no, life is going to be easy. That, that, that once my plan comes in line with God's, that things are going to go well. An under-realized eschatology says, well, I probably shouldn't expect much of anything, much comfort. I just got to keep gritting my way through. Oh, but this good news tells us that in pain and suffering... We have joy. we can have joy that God is present with us, comforting us, but we can also long for the day when all pain and suffering will behind us be behind us. I don't know the same thing can affect our expectations of the church. The church is the place where god's priests proclaim good news that's the church is the place where we are in God's presence together as a community. An overrealized eschatology would tell you that, oh, well, this church can be perfect, or this church uh, you can expect not to have pain, not to have conflict. But that's actually not the way it works. God hadn't promised that yet. An under-realized eschatology we would just say, oh, well, I, we shouldn't expect much of the church. We've seen the pain that causes, we've seen how the imperfections of people actually cause pain on others oh this gives us good news that we can be joyful and longing that when conflict comes we can be joy, joyful and confident that the God's spirit dwells in all of us and that we can move towards one another in humility and repentance yet it gives us longing to the day when finally the sin that remains in us is just gone and that things are all good and well and the church. The church is the place where we hear this good news proclaimed. And where we're going to have hope. So to a sinful and broken people, this is the good news that the Messiah brings. That he is going to bring with his person and work, restoration and hope. As we read this, maybe our experiences tell us that, oh, this news is just, well, it's, it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. Well, verse, verses 1 through 7 tell us how the Messiah's news is good. But it hasn't told us why the news is good yet. Verses 8 through 11 tells us the Messiah's news is good because, well, God is good. That is the hope of this good news that the Messiah's news is good because God is good. Listen as I read verses 8 through 9. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and injustice. I will faithfully reward my people and make a permanent covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their posterity among the peoples. All who see them will recognize that they are a people That the Lord has blessed. Well, these first couple words probably get our attention, or at least they should. First word is "for." This is a causal statement. So all the good news that comes with verses one through seven, it comes for this reason. And what what follows next is it because I'm I'm a pretty good guy who tries hard. You know, does it come because? You know, uh, I'm finding the truth within me, and this is my truth to speak. No, it comes, for I, the Lord, love justice. And we see that the pronoun changes. All of a sudden, it's the sovereign Lord who's speaking here. It's the sovereign Lord. And we point immediately to his character, his good character. And we see that God is good in uh, in verse 8 because he loves justice. You can't be good unless you love justice. Unless you are just, the robbery that he's referring to was happening to even to within God's people, uh, and this is what he's responding to: that uh, truth is missing, and whoever turns from evil is plundered. That's from chapter fifty-nine. People were being unjust to one another. No, the hope for any true sense of justice comes from looking at God's character and the justice that he is. You know, we live in a world right now that I think is passionate about justice. I think that's rightly so. As image bearers of God, we should care that people are treated rightly. Uh, The problem is, is that in all of our rage and all of our upsetness, this I think we miss the solution. We look internally to each other, to our own ideas and the issues that we're all fallen. That we're unlike God. We're not perfectly righteous and just like God. And so in our desire for justice, this passage comes in and says, Well, if you want true justice, it comes from a true and good God. A true and God who doesn't sweep things under the rug. A true and good God who actually acts in ways that makes things right. And we see that he does that on the cross. That he brings justice to bear on Christ Jesus. It's not good to be true. Because he's truly just. His character is good. And we see as as this thought develops that God will faithfully reward his people. He will faithfully reward them. We see that God is good because... He is faithful. God had made a promise to bless all of those who trusted in him. God is faithful to his own promise, to his own word. He had made promises to Adam, made promises to Abraham, to Moses, to David. And God is a man of his word. God comes near to those who are poor in spirit's. We see this in verse, in chapter 59. We see the heart of God here. Uh, This is verse 15. For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. For I will not accuse you forever. I will not always be angry. For then the spirit would grow weak before me and even the breath which I have made. We see God's heart to his people who he has made promises to. That he is going to remain faithful to them. I, I think this is just an important piece uh, to, to think about and to consider because I think everyone in this room, we have been made promises by someone who hasn't kept them could be a boyfriend, a girlfriend, could be a boss, could be a friend, could be a parent, a sibling. Part of what makes good news so hard to believe is that all promises have been broken. Well, the reason we can believe the, good, the news is good this morning is because God keeps his promises. God is faithful to us. So it's not too good of news to trust in someone who actually keeps his word. And if God keeps his word, then his covenant will be permanent. And that's what we see here in the next verse, uh, or at the end of verse 8, that God will make a permanent covenant with him. God's promises change because he does not change. And at this point, I think we can hopefully see that God is strong and, and kind, he remembers our frame. He knows our fickle hearts. He knows that we are ever changing. and he brings in a sense of permanency. See the other covenants, the other promises that I come, oh, uh, particularly to the covenant to, to Moses. Oh, it was required that they continued to follow the Word of God but the people were inconsistent. They did not have that ability with them. So God had made a covenant with us that's that's permanent. The Christ sacrifice was made once and for all. It's one and done here if we believe in him and that God has put his spirit on us as a seal of the covenant, meaning God will finish what he has started. And I think maybe this is good news for us in an in a life that's unstable, and a life that's changing often. As, as I wrote earlier this week, that Christmas time kind of serves as a marker for just for re, uh, observing how life has changed. From Christmas to Christmas, maybe we can see that there was a life gained, a baby was born, or maybe we have lost someone important to us. That maybe there was a job gained or a job lost. Maybe we've moved. Whatever reasons it might be, life changes. Our hearts change. But God's promise is permanent. It is unmoving. And through this permanent covenant, we see that God is good because he's a God of of blessing. And there's no bottom to this blessing We see in verse 9, the descendants will be known among the nations, their posterity among the peoples. All who see them will recognize that they are a people blessed, that the Lord has blessed. Praise God, everything good in our life comes from him. Everything good comes from him. And he is a God who loves to bless his people, who loves to give his people good gifts. You know this makes me think uh, think of Ephesians 1 where it says that God our Father has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ Is that enough for you As we think about what you desire what you long for in life is Christ enough for us You know does this shape our Prayers. You know, I wonder sometimes if our prayers are not that unlike a, you know, a letter to Santa. You know, dear God, I've been pretty good this year. Um, I would like a raise. I'll leave you milk and cookies if you do it. Goodbye. Um, you know, I I think God has given us deeper and better blessings in Christ Jesus that we can look for more than just the circumstances of this life. If we pause and just think for a moment on the spiritual blessings we have in heaven, oh, what a rich reward we will gain. What a rich reward. And there is no bottom to the blessings that God gives. I think finally, though, as we look at the next verses, we see that God is good because he has adorned his messenger. Three read verses 10 through 11. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. As a groom wears a turban, as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the earth produces its growth and as a garden enables what is sown to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up. Before the nations. All right, so in verse 10, I realize this passage, because the pronouns change a lot, could be maybe a little confusing to place who's talking. The I language continues I rejoice, but it's no longer the Lord because he's re- rejoicing greatly in the Lord. So, so it's either the people who the Lord has blessed or it's the Messiah himself. And I think we are, this is the Messiah himself that is speaking in verse 1 for a couple reasons. uh, We see that expanded in the following verses. First of all, that God adorns this Messiah figure with garments of salvation. This actually parallels uh, verses uh, 15 and 16 in chapter 59 when it says, The Lord saw that there was no justice and he was offended. He saw that there was no man. He was amazed that there was no one interceding. So he so his arm brought salvation, his own righteousness supported them. He put on righteousness as a body armor and a helmet of salvation. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Oh, this clothing, this this is God identifying and qualifying the Messiah as the one who can actually bring about the good and bring about the change. But as we continue to read in the next verse, He also adorns. Uh, God adorns the Messiah as a groom wears a turban, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. This is part of a marriage ceremony picture. It actually begins in our verses and goes through the next chapter of uh, chapter 62. God not only clothes his man with the identity and, and qualifications to accomplish this task, but he clothes his man to give him to a bride. That the result of this isn't just righteousness and salvation. Praise the Lord. But because of that work of righteousness and salvation, we see this intimate picture of love. This intimate picture of love. And it's so interesting to see, the, so encouraging to see that the Messiah rejoices in the Lord because of this. The Messiah it rejoices and exalts the Lord. It results in praise of the Son to the Father. And this praise comes from a sure foundation, from a confident place. Nothing can stop this good news as we see in verse 11. He gives it in the, the final analogy that as the earth produces its growth and as a garden enables what is sown to spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before the nations because God has dressed his Messiah, because God has qualified him and sent him, Oh, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. There will be no doubt that righteousness will spring up from the sun and that righteousness will spring up from everyone found in the sun. And so today, as those who are found in Christ Jesus, I think the response we end this morning thinking about is that of exaltation, of confident Praise. Confident praise that God has brought us good news that will bring goodness into our life. Good news that will last. Good news that will carry us through all the suffering and pain that comes in this world. And good news that we can surely hope in. This has come from God and God alone. So with our hearts, with our voices, with our lives, Let's echo this in praise as God's news is proclaimed here in Portland. It goes out throughout the whole world. God is going to get, to get the praise in the end. This morning, we've seen that the news is good. Not because we deserve it. We deserve bad news, but the news is good because God is good. So that means today we have joy. We have comfort. And that today we long for the day when Christ returns and He brings all of his promises to full fruition and all evil and judge all evil is finally judged, and all that's left is good. This is the good news of restoration. This is the good news of Christmas. Would you pray with me? Our good God, we praise you for your good news. We praise you that your heart is towards the morning, the lowly in heart. Your heart is for those who are poor in spirit. So this morning, Lord, we confess. We are poor in spirit. Lord, we also confess that our joy is, is sure that we are confident of our joy in you. And Lord, we look forward to the day when you return and that you finally judge all evil and all sin. And we are with you. God, we thank you for the certain and great hope this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.